It was a supremely interesting decision. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously that states have the power to bind their state presidential electors to vote for the state popular vote winner. At first glance, you might not think this has much to do with term limits. Hi, I'm Philip Blumel. Welcome to No Uncertain Terms, the official podcast of the term limits movement for the week of July 13th, 2020. It turns out this case caused quite a stir at USTL headquarters. In this week's podcast, Executive Director Nick Tombalides and I discuss why. Hey, Nick. So I want to um, talk about this case. Before we get started, let's uh, describe it in more general terms and before we get into details. But as I said in the introduction, the Supreme Court ruled that states can bind their state presidential electors to vote for the state's popular vote winner in the Electoral College. This was an issue that went all the way to the Supreme Court because there were several electors in the 2016 election that even though they were bound to vote for Hillary Clinton, they actually changed their vote and voted for Colin Powell instead. And they did so really because they wanted to convince Republican electors in other states to ditch their obligation to cast their electoral vote for Donald Trump and basically cause a little bit of a rebellion in the Electoral College. Well, only seven people went along with this little rebellion. But the reason why I went to the Supreme Court is because in Washington state, is one of six states that have laws that actually punish you for not being a faithful elector. That is to say, your electoral college, your state voted a certain way, you're supposed to reflect that state's view in the college to elect the president of the United States. And these electors were actually not just removed, but they were actually charged and fined for this. These electors went all the way to the Supreme Court arguing that they have the right to vote their conscience in the electoral college. Okay, now the Supreme Court in the unanimously said, no, you don't. The reason why the Supreme Court made that argument is because in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, the Constitution says that each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, you know, to cast these votes. And the court said, well, look, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct that means that they can choose electors that have committed to vote the way that the state voted in the popular vote. The electors said, no, 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 that's not true. It doesn't say that. Uh, manner doesn't give you all that kind of discretion. But the Supreme Court said, yes, it does. Now, what's fascinating about this is that it was a unanimous decision, but it's actually two decisions because the majority of the court said that, well, this article allows states to choosing the electors and therefore it gives them the right to make some wide range of decisions regarding who they're going to be. But there was a concurring decision from Justices Gorsuch and Thomas. And they said, they sort of agreed with the electors a little bit and said, well, wait a minute, it doesn't actually say that the states, by using the word manner, can make all these decisions. But because it's silent on the issue, the states can do so under the 10th Amendment, right? Because in the 10th Amendment, it says that if the powers aren't uh, delegated to the the federal government, then they are withheld, retained by the people in the states. So under the 10th Amendment, they could do it. So the entire court agreed for different reasons. And this is where it started getting interesting for fans of term limits. Right. They all agreed on the fact that states could punish the electors who go rogue at the Electoral College. Um, but as you mentioned, they agreed for different reasons. You know, normally in the Supreme Court, if Clarence Thomas agreed with the reasoning by Elena Kagan or whoever writes the majority opinion, he would just keep his mouth shut. 
But in this yeah. case, he actually felt compelled. He felt strongly enough to add this concurring opinion to say, okay, we agree with your conclusions, but you went about it the wrong way. And it really came down to what is the definition of this word manner in Article 2 <laughs> of the Constitution? Because right. it gives the states the power to appoint electors to the Electoral College. State legislatures have that power in a manner directed by the state legislature. And yeah. by manner, the majority believes that allows you to set qualifications for the electors. An example of the qualification would be, you know, you are thrown out or you are fined if you don't vote for whoever you pledged. So right. if, if you were a Hillary Clinton elector, if you were supposed to vote for old Godzillary in the Electoral College and you didn't <laughs> and you voted for Colin Powell, you get fined $1,000. Not every state does that, but the Supreme Court yeah. says states do have the right to do that. Um, but what's fascinating by that was in the 1995 case, U.S. term limits versus Thornton, mm -hmm. our case – Two of the same judges from this modern case, because Supreme Court justices almost never retire, they have no term limits, they said that manner did not allow states to set qualifications. That's right. And therefore, states couldn't term limit their own congressmen. So Clarence Thomas, amazingly, in this decision, in this case of, uh, let me try to pronounce it, Chiafalo versus Washington, he kind of slipped a pro-term limits message into his written opinion. He caught the other judges in a glaring inconsistency, in hypocrisy, based on the 1995 ruling that we were involved in, U.S. term limits v. Thornton. Because back in that case, these judges said that Manor did not allow states to set qualifications for their Congress members, mm -hmm. and one of those qualifications would be term limits. And now they're saying that does include qualifications for electors to the Electoral College. And Clarence Thomas nailed them on that. And he didn't need to add this. I mean, that's the amazing thing because he was making the argument based on the 10th Amendment, not about this use of the word manner. So he threw it in, sort of a wink, uh, as you said, sort of threw in the term limits argument. Remember, 1995, this was a split decision, five to four. And this was made, of course, by an old court. And back then, they said that the use of the word manner in, in Article 2, Section 4 was very closely prescribed. It really didn't mean a whole lot when, when the uh, Constitution gave states power to make time, place, and manner decisions about elections. Time and place, of course, are a state provision, but manner doesn't really mean that much. Well, now, in this new decision, in a unanimous decision in a modern court, they said the word manner in Article 2, Section 1, same article, different section, they said that manner actually means a lot more. So here we have a split decision from the past that contradicts a unanimous decision from the present on the issue of what the word means. It creates instability in these decisions, instability in the law that can be addressed in the future. Yeah, because you've got now a word manner that has been mm -hmm. used by the Supreme Court twice in high profile decisions and they give it a different definition between the That's two decisions. Right. It's not a consistent, uniform definition. It cries out for resolution in the future. It does. In one case, they're claiming that it's strictly to set procedural boundaries around an election. In the other case, they're saying that it's pretty much wide open. It includes qualifications, and it could include something like term limits. And Clarence Thomas is reminding them of that. So I think it's a foundation for maybe revisiting that case 
U.S. term limits first, Thornton, and once more investigating whether states have the authority to impose term limits on their Congress members. Hey, this is Ken Quinn, Regional Director with U.S. Term Limits. I really do not understand why the Constitution's Article 5 Convention is so confusing for some people, especially when the men who drafted it and voted for it explain in great detail the very reason for it in their writings. When we examine the debates at the Federal Convention, the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, the debates at the State Ratifying Conventions, letters of correspondence between the framers during this period, the debates in Congress in 1789 over the very first Article 5 application, and the 400-plus Article 5 applications passed by the state legislatures, the evidence is irrefutable that a convention can only propose the amendment or amendments that two-thirds of the legislatures specified in their application to Congress. Here is a great example of what I'm referring to. In Federalist 85, Alexander Hamilton argued against the effort by the Anti-Federalists to call a second convention to adopt another constitution and explained how difficult that would be as opposed to simply proposing amendments to the constitution once it was ratified. In this quote, he also explains the difference between a CONCON, a constitutional convention, which requires unanimous consent versus an Article 5 convention, which only requires two-thirds or nine states to call it, and three-fourths or ten states to ratify an amendment since at that time there are only 13 states. Quote, Every constitution for the United States must inevitably consist of a great variety of particulars in which 13 independent states are to be accommodated in their interests or opinions of interest. Hence the necessity of molding and arranging all the particulars which are to compose the whole in such a manner as to satisfy all the parties to the compact. But every amendment to the Constitution, if once established, would be a single proposition and might be brought forward singly. And consequently, whenever nine or rather ten states were united in the desire of a particular amendment, that amendment must infallibly take place. There can therefore be no comparison between the facility of effecting an amendment and that of establishing in the first instance a complete Constitution." Unquote. Do you see how straightforward this is? Just as we need two-thirds of Congress to propose amendments, we need two-thirds of the state legislatures to apply for one. Thank you, Mr. Hamilton, for making this so easy to understand. At U.S. Term Limits, we are doing exactly as you suggested by trying to get two-thirds of the states to apply for a convention to propose a simple, easy-to-understand, nonpartisan, and desperately needed amendment, Congressional Term Limits. Please sign our petition at termlimits.com and join the revolution. Rock and roll can never die. I wonder how they would rule if the Thornton decision were challenged again. You could see sort it. of you could see sort of the inverse of this decision. You could see the majority of Roberts, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, you know, the conservative, the originalist, textualist judges saying you know, term limits are fine and dandy based on the 10th Amendment. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a power that's reserved to the states. And then you could see some of the liberal jurors or ju justices concurring with them and saying it's legal, not 10th Amendment, but Article 2, Manor. Now that Manor has been, uh, I guess, redefined by part of the court and expanded, uh, pretty much Pandora's box has been opened. I mean, think about if U.S. term limits versus Thornton was today, given that the majority 
of the court agreed that manner is, an, is a very expansive word and that the minority of the court felt that term limits would be allowed by the Tenth Amendment explicitly, <laughs> that court decision may have been very different if it was made in 2020. Long story short, you've got a lot of really uh, old and ineffective and corrupt politicians on Capitol Hill sweating right now. Um, yeah. Because if this decision is ever over overturned, it would be the silver bullet that probably gets congressional term limits completed in mm -hmm. a year or two. Because overnight, you would have nearly half of the U.S. Congress functioning under term limits. And that half would not allow the other half to get away with no not way. having term limits. They would insist, they would demand that some constitutional amendment be adopted to create uniformity yeah. across all of Congress. So th this really would be a shot in the arm for the term limits movement if this decision ever gets sure. uh, overturned. They mentioned U.S. term limits versus Thornton numerous times. <laughs> over and over again, they make reference to it. So it was pretty explicit what they're up to, I think. If I was Clarence Thomas and I had to live amongst snobby politicians in Washington, D.C. all the time, I would constantly be thinking about term limits as well. It would be the only thing on my mind. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a couple other lessons out of all this, though, that I, I want to bring up. Uh, first of all is that, as longtime listeners of the podcast know, U.S. term limits is trying to implement a strategy to impose term limits on Congress via a Article 5 amendment writing convention, Right. And we get pushback on that from people that oppose term limits mostly, but also some conspiracy people that are afraid of the Article 5 process because they're afraid that the states utilizing uh, the convention process to make decisions is inherently dangerous and could run away and create all kinds of other problems. But what I find so fascinating about this, firstly, is that the Electoral College is a you know, state convention process. Similar to, it's not Article 5, of course, but similar to an Article 5 convention, the states are given the power under the Constitution to choose delegates in the manner that they choose and put them together with the delegates from other states to make the decision on choosing the president of the United States. This has been around since the beginning of the country, and it's never run away. In fact, in the modern era, the closest it ever got to a conspiracy to run away was in 2016 when these seven electors out of the entire electoral college decided to vote faithlessly. That is to say, they ignored what the instructions from their state was and voted their own way. That's what, just what people that are worried about a convention running away are worried about. But it was seven of them, and they got punished because it's contrary to the law. And the punishment was held up unanimously by the Supreme Court of the land. I mean, talk about a case study of why a runaway convention is not a realistic threat. Exactly. And you've actually got laws uh, in several states. I believe at least seven states have laws, similar punishments for uh, faithless commissioners or faithless delegates to an Article 5 convention, just like they have punishments for uh, faithless electors in the Electoral College. So I'm guessing right. if this ever went to court, and in this era, everything goes to court, court would probably rule in the state's favor that they have the right to punish these federal commissioners in the same way they punish their own electors. Yeah, the process is really safe. A lot of people don't really understand what conventions are. There are assemblies that were designed to pinch hit for a legislature. When the framers put that in the Constitution in 1787, they weren't dealing with a blank slate. They'd actually had, I think, 32 different interstate conventions in the preceding century that had to do with right. all sorts of topics, like the New England states would get together all the time and 
talk about uh, relations with Indian tribes. Uh, they would talk about price inflation. And the reason you do it that way is so that you can hone in on a specific topic and so you can come up with a specific answer to a specific problem and getting a job done. Uh, and they're much more efficient than a legislature. That's why a convention was created. Uh, that's why we have the Electoral College. That's why we have the Article 5 convention. And that's why we have things like uh, the Uniform Law Commission as well. How can you tell if a politician is lying? That's easy. Their lips are moving. This is Scott Tillman, the National Field Director with U.S. Term Limits. Like most Americans, I don't trust politicians. About the only way you can count on what a politician says is if you can get it in writing. At U.S. Term Limits, we run a very aggressive pledge program, and we get it in writing. Over 300 congressional candidates have signed the U.S. Term Limits Pledge to co-sponsor and vote for the U.S. Term Limits Amendment of three House terms and two Senate terms and no longer limit. And because there are two ways to amend the Constitution, we have a pledge for state legislators. We now have almost 1,100 state legislative candidates who have put their commitment to term limiting Congress in writing by signing this pledge. I pledge that as a member of the state legislature, I will co-sponsor, vote for, and defend the resolution applying for an Article 5 convention for the sole purpose of enacting term limits on Congress. You can find the names of these candidates on our website, termlimits.com, and you can contact candidates in your area and ask them to sign these term limits pledges. Like our page on Facebook, and there you'll find instructions on getting the pledge to candidates in your area. Help the movement by taking action to help us term limit Congress. Another thing worth bringing up is, you mentioned it, the Uniform Law Commission, because this is another ongoing convention of the states that has been around since 1892. It's not in the Constitution. It's something that the states dreamed up themselves and put together. It relates to this case very closely because the law that Chiafalo and the other faithless electors were trying to overturn was a law that came out of the Uniform Law Commission. Now, Uniform Law Commission is a convention of states Every state participates, including Virgin Islands and D.C. and Guam and all that. They all send delegates to the convention, and these delegates work out and hammer out model legislation so that the laws that are passed on a certain subject are uniform around the country so that you don't – it's easier to do business. A person from Florida can do business with someone from New York and not have a completely different legal system. So it's a very useful thing, and the way that the states have decided to deal with it is to have this ongoing convention of the states. Six states have decided so far to prove the recommendation, because that's all it can be, the proposal of the Uniform Law Commission uh, to have these faithless elector laws. Um, but probably more will, particularly now that the Supreme Court has validated it and um, on a unanimous basis. But the key thing about that is uh, how many times has the ULC run away in its uh, more than 100-year history, Nick? 0, 0.0 times. <laughs> the states yeah. decide the selection process for the commissioners. They nominate them. They go to an annual meeting. They're, they participate in committees. They study the legislation, and then they draft it, and then they propose these model laws because, as you said, you want stuff to be consistent from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I don't want to go to New York and pay you know, $100 for a parking ticket and then go to Los Angeles and get the death penalty. 
it forms a very useful purpose, and the delegates never run away. Uh, you never hear of uniform law commission calling for something crazy. It really is when you're trying to evaluate what kind of purpose can conventions, interstate conventions serve. It's a good example of the ingenuity that you can get when the states put their best and brightest people together. And I would say right. it's an excellent model for what a term limits convention can accomplish. The only difference would be with a term limits convention, the topic would be term limits rather than uniformity within the law. You just change from right. one topic to another, but it's that same solid structure, that solid foundation that can get something yeah. done. Now, the Uniform Law Commission is more like an Article 5 convention than the Electoral College because this is a case where the states send delegates to hammer out proposals, and those proposals don't go into effect until those proposals are sent back to the states for them to adopt or not adopt, similar to the idea of the Article 5 convention, right? But one thing that's different, though, and which makes the tournaments convention even safer even than the Uniform Law Convention, from the point of view of people that are worried about it running away, is that the Uniform Law Convention can pick up any subject, right? The Uniform Law Convention, this is one of the great fears of the conspiracy nuts who uh, are worried about Article 5 Convention, is that, yeah, but what if someone raised their hand and picks up another topic? Well, in the Uniform Law Commission, that's actually welcomed, and yet it still has never run away because it has to go through a process, through discussion. The Uniform Law Commission has rules. They have to vote on the proposal. And then if the states don't like the proposals, they just don't adopt them. And the tournaments convention being limited to one subject <laughs> doesn't even have that minuscule danger that the ULC has. And that minuscule danger has never led to any problems for the republic. I mean, the ULC was created by, uh, you know, a bunch of patriotic thinkers uh, in 1892. The convention we're trying to use to get term limits was created in 1787. And I'll tell you how it was created. It wasn't a bunch of aliens that just landed on this planet in 1787 and thought, hey, you know, let's mess with America and put this convention thing in the Constitution. It was James Madison. It was George Washington. It was Benjamin Franklin, it was Alexander Hamilton. It was the founding fathers and the framers who created this. And so I take it very personally as an American when people quarrel with the idea of an Article 5 convention because this is part of the Constitution that the framers of this republic gave us in order to fix the yeah. republic. Because you, remember, the first draft of the Constitution gave Congress all the power over amendments. And then some folks spoke up, you know, it's debated whether this was George Mason or James Madison or uh, Charles Pinckney. They spoke up and said, no, Congress might abuse its power. And when they abuse their power, you need a way to rein them in. And hence the Article 5 convention was born. It is a brilliant part of our constitution. And I, we can't overlook that and we can't overstate how important that is. No, that's right. The Article 5 was a great addition to the Constitution. It's been underused. It's about time we used it. There's important problems at the national level that only the states can solve. And the Article 5 Convention is the only way to do it. The opposition that we are seeing is actually opposition to term limits because they don't want to admit that they're opposed to term limits. That's really the bulk of the opposition that we see to the convention. Over 80% of Americans want this, and they're going to get it eventually. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another weekly episode of No Uncertain Terms. In states around the country, we continue to lay the groundwork for votes on the Tournaments Convention. Right now, we're working on an Arizona pledge push. If you live in Arizona, please send a message to your state legislative candidates asking them to sign the USTL pledge. 
The pledge commits the signer to co-sponsor, vote for, and defend the resolution calling for a tournament's convention under Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. It's easy. Just go to termlimits.com slash az dash pledge dash push. Use the message provided or write your own. It'll take just two minutes. You can bet these candidates will be attentive as the primaries approach. The pledge is the key to keeping their interest after the election. The page again is termlimits.com slash az dash pledge dash push. Thanks. We'll be back next week. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review. The No Uncertain Terms podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and now Google Play. U-S-T-L So stay tuned next week. We're going to be talking about congressional committees and seniority and stupid career politicians who are defending a corrupt and broken system. You don't want to miss it right here on the No Uncertain Terms podcast. Brother, brothers.